This is SciBite, episode 78, for January 22nd, 2013. Hi everyone and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live Wednesday evening, nope, Tuesday evenings over at Jupiter Broadcasting, and then fresh Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Happy science to you. Happy science. All right, Heather, what are we talking about in episode 78? We're going to take a look at dyscalculia, the flu. Laser communications, viewer feedback, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. So I heard something I couldn't even try to pronounce myself and something to do about lasers. That sounds exciting. Let's kick it off with the news. All right, what is our first news story tonight? Dyscalculia. I actually had to write it out phonetically in the show notes so that I would remember, and I listened to the little YouTube clips a thousand times to try to get it right. So, wow. This is sort of like dyslexia on the math scale. It's about 7% of the population has it. Uh, it's also called number blindness. It means that you have severe difficulties with dealing with numbers. Every, you know, only numbers, uh, you know, above to average, normal intelligence, higher, above normal intelligence, all except for math, a very specific section of dealing with numbers. Wow. So this whole thing came about from, believe there was a, a writer, a journalist who was in you know, a foreign country and was having to write up all his receipts hmm. and took him really long time. I mean, he's, you know, chugging out the pages, doing all this research, but it takes him a really long time to put together his receipt numbers. And even then, going back and checking it over, he sends it back and he's like moved a decimal place, completely messed up a couple of things. Luckily, wow, you know, the, the bean counters back home realized he was an honest person and, you know, he, they're like, oh, you just made some <laughs> honest mistakes. It's okay. Okay. So... So approximate number sense is the ability to distinguish larger quantities from smaller ones. So that dots flashing on a screen, fruits in a tree. So, you know, humans have it, other animals have it. You're able to kind of precisely recognize groups of things like up to four. So you can, you know, if some, no, if some dots flash up on your screen, then you can count that really quickly or you'll see them. You know, in groups of two. So if you see six dots up on the screen, you like two, two, and two. There, it's six. But someone with dyscalculia doesn't do that. They sit there and count one by one by one. They they just can't see the groups of two. Huh. You mean not everybody does it like that? <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's the natural way to do it. So when really- you see a bunch of dots on the screen, you immediately see how many they are? Well, no. I mean, you see... Um, generally up to groups of four, depending on how they're oh, grouped. Okay. Yeah. You can see, can see you know, okay. yeah. here's three dots together, two dots together. No, ex- especially when it's even number. So it's like six dots, three and three. So 
great deal of people will see those and your brain will automatically clump those together when you're asked to make a quick estimate. So you're, you know, they pop it up and say, as quick as you can, tell me how many dots are here. So there's six, you say three and three, six. Hmm. Someone with dyscalculia sits there and counts them one by one. So it just slows the process down. Okay. So if that, and I mean, seven, 7% of the population. So if it's, there's bound to be some people, you know, listening that say, hey, that actually sounds like me. What do you well, mean I you count you, by I, groups? I, I can't group the one that we have on the screen right now. Well, there's, you I know, see, there are I some see a three. I see three of them. I can group it like that, but I couldn't. I, have to, I would have to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, well, it's most specifically it comes out when there's even number of groups, when they're all, you know, two dot groups or three dot groups. Okay, okay. Hmm, it's interesting. Now, yeah, my brain's weird where I start grouping them in different numbers and then counting the leftovers, but <laughs> it's the, the ability to do the, the blocks of them. So you're like, okay, I see blocks to estimate how many there are. Mm-hmm. So it's not a deficiency of the numbers itself. It's not your memory, attention, your language. It's just, in fact, there is, they've done some tests where they actually see it in an MRI where it's very specific locations in your brain that trigger during, when you're doing these sort of calculations that they're talking about. So, you know, there's a, you know, it's the ability to, recognize small numbers and things like this. So they went through and they actually had, there's been a number of studies and tests. One uh, did 31 eight and nine year olds who were pretty much near the bottom of the, their class in math, but did really well in all their other subjects. So now dyslexia, you know, just flips them back and forth or does fun things like that. But, Discalculic, discalculic children, they pretty much struggle on every numerical task. Hmm. It's not, it's not necessarily anything else. Hmm. It's the comprehension of numbers. For some reason, in their brain, just isn't wiring the same way as everyone else. So, like children who say they can't count past six, that six is the greatest number in the universe. But if you have a bowl full of NMs and you add some, they know that's bigger. You know, there's more there. Yeah. They can't count how many there are. They have right, no idea, right, but, but they know there's more. Yeah. So there's some very fundamental sort of number codings in your brain so that you can sort of manipulate all sorts of different numbers. This is really interesting. And I wonder, do they know what would be potentially hereditary? Um, they're just now sort of catching on to it. Well, you know, making it more known, should I say? I mean, it's discal- um, dyslexia, I think, is a greater, a significantly greater portion of the population. But, you know, do we know the genetic meanings of that? No, not necessarily. Plus, there's some complications in it that often other things come along with dyscalculia. It's... You know, you can do dyslexia with it. Sometimes there's um, autism or various other things that can kind of twist what you're trying to study. So it's not just that. Sometimes there's a lot of other things going on, which makes it kind of hard to track down more specifically. But they had um, this one test where they, you know, had a student, we'll 
They called him Christopher. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> it was really the name of the story. Yeah, it's okay. But they, you know, said, give a number between 200 and 800. Just kind of had to sit there for a minute for him to think about it. And then I think he guessed like 80. And they're like, no. He's like, uh, 210. And they pretty much thought that he actually meant like 201. But he flipped the numbers. Mm. So they're like, okay, very good job. And then they had a computer program. You know, sort of a game. Where imagine it's like a long yardstick. And you're able to zoom in and out to find that number. Now it took him, it took him a little while to actually find it. And it wasn't because there was anything else wrong. He was, you know, highly intelligent. It was just that his brain just wasn't wiring where 210 should lie on the whole range. Is it, you know, right near 200? Is it near 800? Just the fact that, you know, that scale and sort of how it moves in greater and greater details one by one it's it's hard to grasp that in the place value system. Mm. So there's a number of games actually out there that um, uh, one guy sort of made up. He said, well, I, I have this. This is annoying. Let's hook up with some people who maybe help oh, you know, write some games so up for cool. kids. Oh, cool. He's like, okay, if no one had helped me, maybe, maybe that will give them a better fighting chance to try to help, you know, fight against this as much as possible. Yeah. And... Actually, one of them is like Tetris. And the, and the guy's last name? Butterworth. How great is that? How great is that? You can't get a yeah. better name than Butterworth. Come on. You can't get a better name than that. It's, it's an interesting name. Well, that's I guess it could be thing. Baconworth. Like maybe if you had a name, yeah. if you're named Baconworth. That, that's hilarious. That's the one thing you came away from that in two seconds of looking at the article. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is like, let's look at the article. Oh, Butterworth. <laughs> Well, I'm sold. I mean, I just, I was, as soon as I know the guy is walking around with a name like that, this is a project that's going to get done. Yeah. But, I mean, Tetris, you think it's kind of funny. You know, oh, yeah, what, what Tetris game is going to do it. But there's the bars of different lengths. You have to guess, you know, if it's three bars, is it four bars, will it fit in this area? So it's making some calculations about size, you know, and two is little smaller than four and things of that nature, which kind of help the brain know, track down in one direction to kind of help practice mm -hmm. or a game dots to track where they're, you know, they have to have an Arabic num numeral to patterns of dots and those like those on a dice. So they have to like say match up four dots with the number four, the word four. I wonder I how much of that is actually, I mean, some of it's about memorization, but I also wonder about, I wonder how much of it is about reducing anxiety. Because I wonder if, uh, if some, if there is a little bit of um, like anxiety that sort of is is in play with some of this. Yes, they're they definitely said that that they were talking about it. That it to some degree, if you have a problem with math, there is going to be anxiety about it. Yeah, right. Math it's just kind is of one of the great. Yeah, math is one of the great anxiety makers. So you're gonna have a little problem, and then that's of course gonna make you tentative to do anything and be like, right. uh. I don't want to do this. Yeah. This is horrible. I know I'm bad at this. Oh, I know I suck in these situations. Oh, no, now I have to do it right now. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're going through with these groups of students and trying to figure out these games sort of to help them. So it's kind of interesting in the way that it's hard to make a straightforward analogy of this 
this test gives you this much increased, it makes this much better, you know, 10% better, 30% better, because they're games. So you kind of have to include that in the fact that you want the kids to play. You don't want them to hate the game as much as they hate math. (laughs) Got to make it fun. Yes, you have to have it as much fun as possible. So, so they have these, and it's they've actually seen that there are some improvements. So they had these fMRIs. We've talked about them occasionally on SciBite. Uh, functioning MRI. It's mm-hmm. when they're essentially taking an MRI while you're doing something, so they can see what portions of your brain are being triggered. So during you know after one month of training, they've been these kids have been shown. Um, different parts of their brain are actually triggering differently, which is kind of hinting that the improvements in the math are directly involved with specific brain areas about how the brain deals with numbers and where it would. So, and they can actually see that the longer that's practiced is that these areas are changing. So they're Activating in different ways. So they can actually see... Almost almost working it out, in a sense? Like, sort of exercising that region of the brain? Yes. Huh. <laughs> Think of it's like... I don't know, like... Um, after a big snowstorm or something, or if you're in a muddy area, there's ruts in the road. And that's, that's just the way it's going to naturally go. It may not be in the right lanes. It may not follow... You know, that here's the lane. Oh, no, it's going to swing over there. It's not necessarily following where it's supposed to be. So what that's doing is trying to sort of force things in the uh, more correct direction. A new tread. A new tread, you know, creating new treads so that maybe you can follow those. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting because it doesn't, obviously it doesn't attract much attention. I never really heard of it before now. Yeah. But um, the National Health, Institute of Health spent, you know, two million dollars studying that, and one hundred and seven million on dyslexia. Yeah, well, so yeah. there's quite a bit more on dyslexia because it's obviously much more well known. Yeah, but so there's a number of different, you know, ways they're handling it, and their different governments are kind of it's not really big, except oddly in Cuba. Like Daxum, I can't count dice, or like Daxum's sister, I like uh, so a lot of times at family games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try so hard to get out of them because mm-hmm. I don't like being in the situation of not being able to count. I can count them, but I have to count them one by one. But what I've done now is I've memorized the sides and then I just say, okay, well, if it lands on that size and that's in the, and it looks like that, then it's that number. And I just do it that way. But, uh, it, you know, it took me a while to even just think about even doing it that way for whatever reason. Yeah. So I wonder if I, I wonder if it's some sort of fla- flavor of that or if that's just something else. Well, certainly the way you say it, that's the one of the main things that they say is the the main, I don't know, not symptom, but whatever it is, is the counting dots thing, is that you're not grouping them in numbers. You know, you're not seeing them in groups. You're counting them one by one. Mm-hmm. So that would be, that's actually interesting that this story may be partially about Christopher, the imaginary kid, and the not so imaginary Chris. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> well, you know, cool. I've always said diagnosis through podcasting is 100% reliable. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. But yeah. if anybody actually thinks, hey, that does kind of sound like like me or someone I know, 
there's a number of YouTube clips in the in the show notes, and there's actually the Dyscalculia forum on the in there that I think I believe uh, can lead lead you to some kind of online tests to help you get a better idea or local. It might I believe it had local areas as well where you could go get tested. Now, tested or no, but in school, you know, if you have that, you can if you have an actual quote unquote diagnosis, then you can get extra time on tests or, you know, in any sort of situation in the school or work, you can have a little bit of leeway, but like, no, I have this note. Hmm. You you really should give me a little extra time, especially in, in schools and in your job, you get around it or as best you can or have other people double check your stuff generally. Mm-hmm. But more especially in school, you might be able to get more more time on these kind of tests so you can say, no, I just need to count in a separate way as everyone else. I could see that could be a specific challenge because in practical life situations where it's something kind of repetitive, you just mm-hmm. learn to memorize and, and count it that way. But you mm-hmm. know, when you're under the deadline <clears throat> in a test scenario, it would be a little bit more of a challenge. But uh, until they probably spend more time researching it, you know, it probably won't be very well known. Yeah. So it's just sort of take it as you can get it and hopefully get these, you know, programs out to as many kids as possible or adults as possible so that you can kind of practice these to help try to retrain the brain in different ways to help combat that. Hmm. Interesting stuff, Heather. All right. Wow. Well, go check out all the great links, including some videos that Heather has in the show notes that have lots of good info in them. Heather, what do you say? We take a little break right here. Oh, right there. And uh, just give a plug to the affiliate links at the bottom of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Look, so let's just say uh, a burger does not come out of the Jupiter Broadcasting budget. But if it did, I would love a burger right now. If you wanted to help me get a burger, one way you could do that is by going over to Jupiter Broadcasting and using the links at the bottom of the website before you shop at Amazon or eBay or Netflix or Think Geek or Best Buy or Audible, which I love. Now, I'm not saying I'd use that money to get a burger. I'm just saying right now I want a burger. And if you want a burger, you should use those links. That's what I'm really saying. And if you ever had a burger, then you should definitely go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash donate, especially if you enjoy a few of our programs every single week and would love to lock in some funding. You can do so. There's monthly subscriptions through Amazon and PayPal, and uh, those are pretty cheap. And you can also do a one-time donation, which you could even say, do it for a couple of times. Do it like you know for a couple of months and then stop. You can leave a little comment, and those comments uh, go here on our donor recognition wall when you do the uh, system like that. So that's also a great way to support the network through affiliate links or through donating directly. And thank you to everybody who does that and to everybody who enjoys burgers, even the meat and non-meat varieties. Right, Heather? Yes, yeah, so and now anyone who, who's heard this, if you make a donation, write in the comments, burgers. You're right. Yeah, don't, totally. Because now we're all hungry. Tell them burgers sent you. Yes. <laughs> all right, now let's now move on to the news bite. Gosh, that's such a good one. Can yes. we do it again? No, all right, I won't. Yeah, just once. That's okay. Okay, I guess I just have to wait till next week. Now I have yep. something to look forward to next week. Yes. All right. Well, what is the first story in the news bite? The flu it is everywhere. It makes the news. It makes us all try to find the flu shot and stay far away from everyone as possible. Yeah. It's been a so, season. Yeah. So we know how long it takes the flu to sort of invade our cells and to spread to over other humans. Now, there might be a new treatment to actually combat the flu that actually f- 
fights it by resetting its own clock. It's sort of internal clock. Resetting so the flu's clock? Yeah, it's, it has its own little internal clock. Okay, all right, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm jiving so far. Okay, so it has to multiply, multiply, invades a cell, hijacks it in some way, makes a whole bunch of copies of itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, cells have a warning system that sort of also say hey, there's an invader, um, we need reinforcements, but that takes a certain amount of time. So the virus has a very specific window of time that it calibrates to. It says, all right, we have to move fast enough to beat all the white cells so that we don't get so that it can actually survive. But it needs to go have at least enough time to copy itself. So they can see that it needs you know, eight hours to make enough copies of itself. And in order to infect another human, it's about two days. So they're, they've actually seen that it actually starts gathering a protein that it needs in order to exit the cell. So what they were able to do is they went in and they tricked the virus into changing the amount of time it took to gather that protein. Hmm. So it's, you know, gathering up enough, enough, you know, keys to open up the door that has, you know, six locks. So like, so they have to unlock all six things. So what they're doing is they're tricking it into having to go gather more keys. Now it, once you've done that, there's enough time for the white, cel- the white cells in your body to actually combat it, to go attack it and kill it off. Right, it caused just enough of a delay to give them a window of opportunity. Yeah. <clears throat> so, that, I mean, they can go either way. One, they make it go too quickly, which leaves, which means it leaves the cell before it has enough copies of itself. Oh. So it's not able to make enough copies. So it still infects, but just not enough copies or whatever. Yeah, it can't oh, I spread okay. as much. Huh. So one little flu doesn't end up with a thousand flu, you know, cell molecules. It just ends up with maybe like three. Or if you make it leave too late, then there's enough time for the immune cells to attack. So there's two different ways they can adjust the time. So right now, I mean, you still have the flu vaccine, should you be able to get it, as the best way to protect yourself against the flu. But not everyone is able is able eligible to get one, or there's a lack of shots. Um, of course, the nasal sprays, they always say, are better, but there's a great deal of population. You can't really do that hmm. because it's a live virus. But it's all about edu- making educated guesses about which flu strains will actually spread. There's a lot of different flu strains. And so at the beginning of the season, they kind of have to say, okay, we're going to guess it's this six things. I don't know if it's exactly six. But this group that's actually going to spread. And they make a whole bunch of that vaccine. And it's kind of a hope and an educated guess about whether those will be the ones that spread. So you're, And this year it happens to be that, yes, they actually guessed the one that is the most mm. pronounced this season. That's kind of, I didn't realize it was, I mean, I'm sure they have very good metrics they follow. But yes. it's kind of a bit of a shot in the dark. <laughs> yeah, there are some years where they go. Oh, man, it's not the one we thought would spread the most this year. But this kind of a treatment that actually changes the timing, it wouldn't matter which strain of a flu it was. Mm. It would do anything. It would just either slow down or speed up it so that it would kind of break the timing of it to make it not spread as much. Hmm. You're just fooling its internal clock so that it's not, it doesn't have enough time to copy itself or gives the body enough time to attack it no matter which strain it is. That is really something. 
and uh, it kind of shows you a, sort of a, a, di- a different way of, of really approaching it is not so much having to completely defeat it, which is always like how, like, you know, whenever you take, uh, like my son who has an infection, he takes an antibacterial mm-hmm. and it's kind of like you, you, you shock your whole system with this antibacterial, whereas this mm-hmm. is more like just slowing it down enough just or speeding it up, just kind of yeah, tripping yeah, it up from its system. Yeah, it's tripping it up and giving your body enough time to, in you know, if they slow it down, then it's giving your body enough time to attack it and sort of do it on its own. Do its thing, yeah. What it, do what it's meant to do. Yes. And uh, actually, just reboot from the chat room said, couldn't it adapt to that, though? Well, of course, everything could adapt, but should you be able to figure this out, then could you adjust the timing even more, sort of tweak it as time goes on? But... With anything, they're going to essentially medicine has to stay as well as they can, one step ahead of everything else is going on. Then you just speed up and slow it down. Then you speed it up and you slow it down, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, any other thoughts on that one? No, I don't think so. All right, then it's time for the two bike news. <laughs> Right. Okay. So what is the uh, two-byte news story? The Mona Lisa has gone to the moon and back. <laughs> what? No way. So, yes. Well, yes. With a well in there. So everything, all the satellites that go beyond Earth's orbit use radio waves for tracking and communication. But as a sort of first demonstration of laser communication with a satellite on the moon, the Lunar Reconnaissance or- Orbiter has actually beamed an image of the Mona Lisa to the spacecraft from Earth in lasers. That's great. So this is where the lasers comes in. This is where the lasers. We are using lasers for communication. So they actually, it is the first instrument. Um, it actually had lasers already on board. They're using it to as an altimeter so they can see how high the, the ground elevation is. So they're able to sort of piggyback on, on that those that are routinely sent back to, you know, its position. So these are, so the fact that it was sent, is so it was actually do, able to do simultaneous laser communication and tracking. Ooh. So they're able to, you know, it's major, you know, it's doing all, it's main mission. They're not interrupting that at all. They're just being able to do this in, yeah. in addition got, to. Yeah. It's already got all the gear. Yeah. So they were, you know, they've obviously verified it. There's returning emission, an image to the Earth. So there was, there's also a very specific timing to, it's the key to the transmission. So every pixel is converted into some sort of shade of gray. So the number between zero and 4,095. So then they divided the Mona Lisa into, you know, 152 pixels by 200 pixels. And so each pixel was transmitted by a laser pulse. <laughs> Add with, one in 496 possible time slots. So they're giving a specific time slot to each laser pulse to say what shade of gray it should be. And then they're able to get that about 300 bits per second. So then they reconstitute it together. Now, of course, Earth's atmosphere has some turbulence, which gives some transmission errors. So they use the same kind of coding uh, for error correction as they do most commonly in CDs and DVDs. Uh-huh. For skips? <laughs> yes. 
For, yes, exactly. <laughs> so right now it's the only satellite um, outside of Earth's orbit that can be tracked by laser and do this, but they're hoping in the near future that this laser communication might be able to serve as a backup for radio communication that maybe even will allow for higher rates of data like, uh, than radio oh, waves yeah. can do. So they could, they could use it for essentially a data transmission, really, because if you can transmit yeah. an image, you could transmit a, a, a orders, you could transmit mm-hmm. code, I guess. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of things going on there. That It was sort of interesting, the fact that they're actually being able to do that now. And, you know, you have the higher, like you were saying, the bit rates. But as a backup, communication is really, is really important too. There's a whole different, I mean, a whole different set of ways to do it, a whole different set of instrumentation. So there's no real, not a lot of crossover. So should something go wrong with the radio communication, the laser is probably not going to be affected by that at all. Hmm. Hmm. That's pretty neat. I can't wait till we have a moon base up there and then we're talking to it with lasers. And then yes. maybe if we got powerful enough lasers, I could mount one on my roof. And then when the Earth and the moon were just in the right spot, I could send them a podcast from a laser. From Earth. Yeah. With lasers. Yeah. What do you think, Heather? Sure. Okay. All right. Well, then now that uh, you've agreed that that's possible, let's move yes. on to the spacecraft. Wait, no. Actually, we have a little incoming communications, don't we? We do. Now, I got to warn you. Uh, I have a little bad news here. Oh, no. The the pictures don't load for me. Oh, no. And I have a feeling that's important to the story. Here, I'll double check. Let me double check. Okay. But I get an access denied error message when I oh, try to load them. Oh, no. I mean, I'm checking again. I'm checking one Okay. But tell me about well, them. What do we get? Yeah, I get access denied. Oh, I'll have but, to fix those links. Yeah, and then we'll fix them, and then they'll be in the show notes. So we'll talk about them, and people can go check them out. Yes. Uh, Eliza... Um, are she's actually the young lady who sent in some questions in a much earlier slide bite, sent in some video questions on her class, sent in a question. She's able to take a picture of the moon a couple of days ago with her little star blaster telescope, and she sent that in. So she had the raw image that she sent in, and I had that. And I also went through and did a little, you know, five minutes of cool. sort of post-processing to... Awesome to uh, make it a little bit clearer. Very so cool. it's, it was really cool because the moon is actually a difficult imi- difficult object to image because there's such a variety of the contrast that it's really bright. Mm-hmm. But in order to get some of the craters, it's fairly dim. And through a telescope itself is kind of... Yeah. It's difficult to get it non-shaky. Yeah. So... That's really impressive. Well, very cool. Great work, Eliza. And uh, go to the show notes, folks, and check that out. And, uh, you know, enjoy. And yes. uh, please send in your uh, pictures or your stories like that to SciByte at jupiterbroadcasting.com or use that contact form, which you can find a link to at the very top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Now, Heather, it's time for a spacecraft update. All right, what do we got flying around up there? Alrighty, the Kepler Space Telescope. It has been discovering or helping us discover planets for a little while. Mm-hmm. It is currently in a safe mode. It that sounds bad. That sounds like they're shutting well, it down. They no no no. They had a planned safe mode okay. for a little while, but they kind of had to extend it because is that like when you get malware on your 
telescope and then you need to go into safe modes and that way you can take stuff out of startup? Well, they do these things in safe mode occasionally just so they can sort of halfway shut down so that they can restart everything and huh. kind of check it to make sure everything's okay. So it is kind of like that a little bit. They're shutting it down to sort of do some maintenance and whatnot. Yeah, to do some maintenance, but it had to be extended just a little bit mm. um, because one of the wheels that they use for, well, it's the torque it needs to rotate. They have these reaction wheels that went up with four. Hmm. One of them went out last um, July, I believe. And so it's running on the three it needs. It's a three minimum that they need. And one of them was needing a little bit more torque than they thought it should in order to rotate. So they've continued to shut everything down, give it a little bit longer to rest. Um, might give it an opportunity to sort of redistribute um, the internal lubricants, maybe get everything to some normal friction levels. So it'll hopefully so they have help like, that. They have like pumps that they can move stuff around with and move fluid? Mm. No. Sort of. I think it's more like you have something oiled, like an oiled ball, ball bearing, mm-hmm. but maybe part of it got a little dry or think a uh, ballpoint pen. Occasionally you'll get maybe a little dry point, a spot. Yeah. So you're going to have to let things settle, wiggle them around to sort of help. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I follow. Well, so then we don't know when they'll be reactivating? Or did you say? No. No, they're hoping to get things back up, but they want to make sh- give it a, a 10-day rest period. Oh, 10 days. Okay. Yes, and then they'll sort of start bringing it back up from safe mode, sort of return to science operations, but keep a real close eye on that specific wheel, make sure that it's still behaving as well as possible. As long as it continues okay. to do so, then we should get another couple of years okay. out of this telescope. All right, good, good. Good, because that's, that's been a great one. All right, Heather, well, while we're yes. up in space, why don't we do a Curiosity update? And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on live. <laughs> I see it. All right, Heather, so uh, with uh, now uh, this not the uh, Curiosity rover, safe mode, pff, right? It's like, come on, that's for the old guys. Safe mode. <laughs> it's out there working, right? It is chugging along. We've had some new images returned that actually show quite a diverse uh, number of features. Yeah, sedimentary rocks, pebbles, cracks, veins. Ooh. Now, the veins specifically seen are this bright white material, and it contains elevated levels of calcium sulfate, huh. probably uh, bassanite or gypsum. Now, gypsum veins are seen here on Earth. They're associated with water percolating through cracks and fractured rocks. Okay. So... You look at them, looking at them side by side, it looks very similar. So it's sort of more evidence of water percolating through these rocks and probably left this material behind. So now they're hoping to be able oh, to go. Oh wow! Into- I mean, just looking at it, it looks like it's from water. Yes, it looks extremely similar side by side. Yeah, it looks so like hoping- just stuff you'd see here near a river. Yeah. So now they're hoping to be able to roll over to one, maybe drill into it directly get a little bit of that powder into the analytical instruments on board, decide to get a more accurate composition of what's up there, what its layout is. And then on the way over to that, there's actually plans to use the wheels to sort of crush some of the nearby veins to see what they look like, you know, freshly freshly broken. Mm -hmm. So driving across the, the surface, they've already rolled over some things that sort of breaks 
apart and maybe there's extremely bright white material there. We've seen it on a number of these different rovers, even the older ones. You can kind of see it where there's salt sort of pops up almost looking. So they're, they've got a, a handful of them that they're looking at. They're like, okay, we're going to go over, roll over those, take some pictures of that, and hmm. then continue on to take a drill sample of what they're aiming for. They're doing like little, uh, they're doing like little kinds of, not shovels, but digs in the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. I love these Curiosity rover reports that uh, you link to yes. every week. And they have uh, a great shot of that that they uh, they tossed in there. So we, Heather has links to that in the show notes. And uh, you can uh, watch those with uh, their commentary. Although still not Mohawk Dude. Hasn't been Mohawk Dude for a really long time, actually. No. Kinda no, he, I believe he actually <clears throat> showed up in the uh, presidential parade. They had Mohawk to, Dude. Really? I believe I saw something about that, that they, they brought on uh, Mohawk Dude. That's kind of cool, actually. Maybe, okay, that's a legitimate reason why you can't... Okay, but now after that, Mohawk, dude, get back on it. Come on, get back on the stick. Speaking of getting <laughs> back on things, let's get back in the time machine, Heather. Here we go. All right. Oh, oh, I'm going to just guess. This feels like about 60 years. About 60, yep, there it is. Just a hair over. January 24th, 1948, 64 years ago, this week in science history. IBM dedicated the Selective Sequence Electronic Calculator. 13,500 vacuum tubes, 21,000 relays. It took up three sides of a 36, I mean, by a 30-foot by 60-foot room. The back wall is just three punches with 30 readers. So you have paper tape storage. This is one of the ones that you take a card reader, poke out what you need, put it in, and wait. As it goes through all that. And and it's just a calculator. Yeah, it really was. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, I, so there's there's a couple of different iterations of this thing. I have a picture up uh, that will be pulling up here in a second mm-hmm. of one that um, was sort of like IBM's uh, sales pitch edition. So they built this to make a really big stink about it, right? And uh-huh. then, they, then they tried to put it in business magazines as a, look what you could do. You just take out this floor of your office of your building and install <laughs> our equipment. And then they had like uh, this example, this example secretary where she would be, you know, tending to the system and mm-hmm. these, the computers all behind glass. It was a really big, like uh, way of the future kind of moment for them. Yeah. Was it in my uh, college in one of the science buildings? Uh, there was two big pools and a walkway. And they said, you know, that's underneath there is where, some of the big old computers were in the pool, giant pools were to help cool that lower room. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, so, those things, those things, gener- those tubes generated a ton of heat. Yes. Yeah. Those, that's, those vacuum tubes are actually kind of coming back, too, in some capacity. All right, Heather. Well, that's fascinating. I, that, that is a good trip down memory lane. Why don't uh, we uh, kind of reset now and uh, look? What? Well, Wait for it. I'm waiting for the Cybite 2000. Wait reading? for it. It's waiting. Come on. Maybe Cy- the card reader. Cybite. There it goes. <laughs> Sometimes we the needed Cy- the card reader. Yeah, the Cybite 2000 needs his own new card reader. All right, Heather, well, what's up in the sky this week? Alrighty. On Saturday, we're going to have a full moon. And Venus in particular this week, about 30 minutes before sunrise, look to the southeast horizon. It's going to be inching lower and lower each day. So it's going to get harder and harder to see. And Mars, you look to the fading sunset, going to look low in the west to southwest area. 
Jupiter, the awesome planet, is look after sundown. It's going to still be about the first star to appear, moving high to the southern sky um, as it goes on. To the lower left of it will be Aldebaran. The only reason I bring that up is because it is a orangish star. So that is actually a star, not Mars, hanging out over by Jupiter. And a but above it and to the right is Pleiades. It's a small star cluster. Kind of looks like a little fuzz, fuzzy spatch. And if you are up way early in the morning at 1 a.m. your local time, look to the east and southeast to see Saturn. It will be moving to the upper southern skies by dawn. Very cool. And uh, now uh, I got some good news. I grabbed your Twitter feed. Yes. And I saw uh, Eliza's photos of the moon. Yes. So here, I'll pull them up so that way uh, folks can see in the recording so that way they don't get a chance. And uh, the first one I'm showing is the before, and then mm -hmm. here's the after with post-processing. And, and wow, the, the details of the moon's surface really pop in the post-processed version. Yeah. It, the, it looked, I was pretty impressed by the image itself. So. Yeah, great work, Eliza. That, Eliza, that looks like professional work. Yeah. So she it was could really cool. uh, she could sell these almost. I would. I don't know. Do they, can you make money on on these kinds of things? Yeah. Because if you can, I mean, there's there's lots of astrophotographers that make money. Well, now I there's so, huh? oh yeah, it makes there's a whole line of stuff that goes on, trying to figure exactly how to take the pictures and the timing and all sorts of stuff like that. But actually, that reminds me, um, Kepler. We we're talking about it a minute ago. They've actually started actually posting all of the research data now they have the ar archives that they had sort of they held it and they published mm -hmm. some of them and mm -hmm. now they're publishing everything that's awesome and so if you and it's a dynamic list so if i look on there and say hey cool i, th I think this may show a planetary candidate in this little section of the data that's there that comment is attached to that set of data oh so kind of gives a better chance for a wider variety of people to be able to look at this college students students any sort of group i mean planet hunters that's the online thing they found i think they found a little over 40 new planets now with through the public available archive system right, right so the archives are even grander now so hopefully we'll be able to pick a little bit more out of the data from that now folks can be an astronomer from their computer chair yes that's pretty cool all right, Heather, well, I think that brings us to the end, doesn't it? I think so. All right, well, guess what, folks? Uh, if you were following Heather on Twitter, then you would have seen those photos earlier. Just go over to twitter.com slash JB underscore Mars underscore base. Also, I encourage you to join us live on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv. You can also follow me on Twitter if you'd like. I'm twitter.com slash chrislas. All right, Heather, well, thanks for the great show this week. Thank you. All right, everyone, well, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of SciBite. I hope we see you right back here next week. <laughs>